0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our very special guest. He's Dennis Rainey, host of Family Life Today. Again, the new book, Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood, available through Bay Area Christian bookstores as well as through the Family Life website, familylife.com. That's familylife.com. Dot com. You know, just before the break, Dennis, we were talking a bit about uh, learning how to act in a courageous fashion, and you mentioned some of the things that are besetting the American family today, whether we're talking about uh, kids that are trapped under the force of peer pressure that leads to sexually acting out, rebellion, pornography, drugs, the whole list. Some people might say, well, it just seems as if sin is more abounding these days. I have to wonder, Dennis, in the grand scheme of things, is it a case where somehow there's more sin let loose on the world today, or is part of this just a lack of light? In other words, could we stem the tide? Could we turn the direction of what's happening in our society and in the American home today, if more men would step up, be a, a, a husband to the wives, be a father to their children, do the kind of, of mentoring and modeling that is necessary, and in particular, help young boys and girls understand what their responsibilities ought to be and where the limits should be
2: great question and uh, i'm going to let isaiah i'm going to let isaiah answer or cast a little light on the answer in isaiah 59 isaiah is talking about how bad the day was he says, we growl like bears, we moan like doves. They're looking at the injustice, the lack of mercy in the culture, and it's just causing a grief that, that just causes people to shrivel up and and to just retreat. And then it says, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. Mm. The picture here is that things get so bad that the the righteous... Stand away from the battle with their arms folded, going, You know, it's just too bad. This is all going bad. This is just, it's really, you know, there's a lot of evil taking place. And then listen to what he says. He says, For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The picture here that Isaiah paints is that truth is not standing up, erect, in the street for people to see the standard. Instead, it's flat on its face. It's stumbled in the streets. And it says, as a result, uprightness can't enter. And then it says, truth is lacking, and as a result of truth lacking, it says, people who were actually designed by God to prey upon evil, to push back against evil, the very evil we were meant to conquer, turns around and preys upon us. It says, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. I, I think the problems that we're facing in our nation are a bunch of very small personal battles at grassroots America, that if those who profess to follow Jesus Christ would begin to turn around and pray upon evil and push back against evil and say, you know what, that's indecent. Like I did in a bookstore in uh, Grand Central Station in in, in Manhattan about uh, six or eight months ago, I was there and I walked by a book and it had it had a title to a book that was a, that was a. Uh, it's a curse word, except it's a vulgar curse word. And I didn't go up with a Bible and beat the guy up who owned the store, but I just, I just have to tell you, I was getting ready to buy some stuff, and I'm not going to buy anything because I'm really offended by, by your book. And it, it resulted in a very healthy conversation between that shop owner and me. And you had to wonder, how many people have walked by that book? I saw a little kid looking at it, a six-year-old kid. And... Indecency, vulgarity, evil is encroaching in our society. And the, the statement that was made: all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do what? Nothing. Nothing. And so, guess what? That's what we do, because we think it's somebody else's battle. It's not mine. Well, you know what? I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to fix every evil. I can't. There is a lot of evil today. Back to your original question: Do I think things are more evil today? I, I don't think so. I think evil has more access to our lives in, in terms of privacy in our homes today than has ever existed. The Internet being piped into our homes, cable TV, uh, pornography is destroying a generation of boys. The, the average age boys are now being being taught to look at pornography it is not 13, 14, 15, and 16. It's ages 8, 9, and 10. And the hard wiring of a boy's emotional system and sexual system are not connected. And we don't even have any idea of how the devil of hell is destroying young boys and their manhood in its very inception, in the germinating stages of what it means to be a young man. And that's my assignment as a dad, to attempt to build... The truth into my life, into my family's life, so that truth hasn't stumbled in the streets. Truth is there pushing back against evil.
1: You know, I like to liken it, Dennis, to the analogy of when you, you come in, say you've been out for the evening with the family, and you come into the house, the lights are all off, the room is very dark, and somebody might observe as you're walking through the front door, gee, it's pretty dark in here, but what's the first thing they call for? Turn on the lights. This room is not necessarily in a condition of having excessive darkness. What's really happening is there is a lack of light. And I think at the core, what you're suggesting here is that godly men need to turn on the light. And as they do so, that light will dispel darkness. The good will dispel evil. And then, as you talk about the the stages, the steps of a man's life. And as he learns how to apply the principles from Scripture to lead and to protect and to serve and to model and and to defend our children, we can make a significant difference. In spite of the fact that, as you suggest, you know, evil's got an easy pipeline into our homes these days with the internet and to cable television and all of these things that that surely make parenting today certainly more difficult. Right. But not impossible, because we have a weapon that God has given to us that, that is as strong today as it was when that book was first written.
2: Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave his life, I believe, in his early 30s for his faith in Germany. He refused to join Hitler's army and was ultimately uh, became a martyr for his faith in Christ. But he made this statement. He said, It's the righteous man who lives for the next generation. Someone else said, Our children are the living messengers we send to a time we will not see. Here's the question for a man, a father, a grandfather, maybe a single guy. What kind of message are you going to send to the next generation? What's your imprint on other people's lives for Jesus Christ that leaves the mark of God's goodness, God's mercy, God's love, God's grace? to to imprint that on the next generations lives. So they're going to make a difference when
1: you're gone. So you're suggesting, Dennis, even today as we see a lot of debate about the debt ceiling and how we are passing this huge amount of indebtedness on to, to future generations, to our children and our grandchildren, that perhaps for the Christian man, the question of what we're going to leave, the legacy that we will leave for future generations, is one of an even grander and and more critical and more serious answer, isn't it?
2: There's, In my opinion, the battleground for, for the nation. We, we certainly have to have fiscal responsibility. We have to have godly leaders in Washington, D.C., and the state houses of all 50 states. But I'm going to tell you something. America ca- has survived um, political corruption. It cannot survive the breakdown of its most basic unit, the family. No nation will survive that breakdown. Martin Luther King, Jr. made this statement. He said, Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And you said it a few minutes ago, Craig. I I think it's, it's our choices. The choices we make, deciding to be God's man, and it's why I like the title of the book, Stepping Up. It's just amazing how often men use that with one another. Uh, You know, I I stepped up. I made the commitment. Uh, Whether it's a single guy listening right now who's, who's avoided making the commitment of marriage, there's a lot of guys today prolonging adolescence wanting to be single and have fun and not assume responsibility well into their 30s. There are even those who are sociologists, Craig, who are recommending that we prolong adolescence, for another 10 to 15 years. That's not the solution. That's not the kind of men we need today. We need guys who are willing to say, you know what? Give me the ball. Give me the responsibility. I'm going to fail. I may fail forward, but I'm going to step up. I'm going to attempt to make my mark for Jesus Christ and make a difference. I'm just one man. You're just one man, Craig. But... Um, you know, each of us has given a sphere of responsibility. We, we try to do our best. I, I, I look at my life someday, and the, the longer I live, the more I believe the cross is the hope for me and all of, all of humanity because we are desperately sick with selfishness and sin. We have missed the mark. And so it's not a matter of being perfect, but it is a matter of stepping up in faith and saying, God, I want to be your man.
1: We so often will take a look at the Sunday football game or the results of the baseball or basketball game and opine about certain players and say, you know, so-and-so just needs to step up. Maybe it's time now for each and every man in the faith to take that own advice. Stepping up, a call to courageous Manhood. The new book, by the way, available through the resource ministry of Family Life at FamilyLife.com. That's FamilyLife.com. The broadcast, Family Life Today, weekday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. And the author of Stepping Up, I'll Call to Courageous Manhood, our special guest on this edition of Lifeline, Dennis Rainey. Dennis, as always, an education to visit with your brother. Appreciate your time today, and we'll catch you on the radio, as they say, tomorrow at 8.30 a.m
2: privilege, Craig. Great to be with you.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: There's a bit of graffiti that I saw on a wall one day that made such an interesting statement. You've heard this phrase before, God is dead. Nietzsche, in fact, had made that comment low many years ago. So here is the big piece of the graffiti on the wall that says, God is dead, Nietzsche. And somebody had come along and tagged it in different color spray paint and drew a big circle with a line through it. And then down below wrote the following phrase, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> it makes you, makes you kind of look at the whole debate over the existence of a higher power, a greater being, uh, God himself, and the sense that struggle in the modern age of, of increased knowledge that people have, while I think there is unprecedented levels of interest and hunger in spiritual matters. Um, along with that, though, we see the fastest-growing segment of belief is in fact non-belief or atheism. Well, why is that? And how much of this has to do with understanding of God and the level of the way which Christians live out their lives, and in some ways, perhaps embarrassingly so, turn people off to the gospel? How can we put forward evidence for God in an age of uncertainty? Well, we've invited uh, Dr. Rice Brooks to join us on the program. He is um, pastor of Bethel World Outreach Church. she's the author of a number of best-selling books. His latest simply entitled, God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. And Pastor Brooks, great to
3: have you on the program. Thank you so much, Craig.
1: This is, uh, this is an old debate, but it's a debate that seems to be ever-increasing these days, as certainly we see uh, tremendous interest in the occult, in the supernatural, um, in um, alternative so-called religions like Wicca and paganism and so on and so forth. I don't, don't think there's any argument that uh, mankind still doesn't quest for some kind of a uh, satisfaction to a spiritual thirst, but the manner in which we go about doing it, and in particular the direction in which we head in terms of whether or not we ultimately arrive at belief in God or not, that seems to be changing. And as you point out in the book, uh, remarkably and disappointingly so— the fastest segment of those in the arena of belief are those who believe in nothing. Why is that?
3: Craig, uh, that was actually a Newsweek article uh, last Easter that said that they they noted that, that the fastest growing of, quote, uh, area segment of, quote, belief is uh, is uh, atheism or skepticism. I think, uh, you know, after, probably after 9-11, there was a rash, uh, shortly after there was a rash of books by men like Richard Dawkins and, Sam Harris and, and the late Christopher Hitchens, and they, they took their beef with religion public in a, in a greater way, um, to to basically to ridicule faith to say there's no evidence for God, and so a lot of those books and materials have come out, and there's just this rash of, that kind of it's almost like a political campaign, and I think that uh, the arguments that they put forth are flawed, and if but if there's no response to those arguments. Uh, then then those arguments, though deeply flawed, will prevail. So I think that what happens, and that's the reason I wrote the book God's Not Dead, one of the reasons is because I think there are clear, uh, clear straightforward arguments or evidences for God, but you have to know what they are.
1: And, of course, you have to live it out. I, I wonder, just based on what we see as is- Modern-day Christianity in a world of uh, you know mega churches and and the approach towards uh, uh, you know new ageism so on and so forth creeping into what had been um, normative evangelical Christianity that there are a growing number of believers out there who can't defend their faith because the faith they have is indefensible, meaning that it is weak, it is listless, it's
3: ineffective. Craig, you're right, and I mean, I mean, really the. I mean, Jesus Himself came along, and the greatest seems like some of the greatest criticisms was against religion itself, or the practice that uh, thereof, and the, and the mis, misunderstanding that lives of people gave in terms of what how they represented God. But you know, again, I have five children. If my children do bad things, that doesn't mean I don't exist. And so I think it's really beside the point. The question of does God exist? Is there evidence for Him? Uh, I believe there 's clear clear cut evidence not only scientifically philosophically, and then ultimately historically in the resurrection of christ and though lives of certain people are, who profess to be believers uh, maybe discredits that or points away from that, I think that we have to say those are philosophically those are called ad hominem arguments meaning it 's argument against the man but um Really, when you when you start looking at that, and when you start putting forth the evidence for God, uh, in fact, the Newsboys, a Christian group uh, that many of them have been a part of our church out here, they have a song uh, that they uh, put forth called "God's Not Dead." And in the last 18 months, it was a, you know, a very fast number one hit, and and, and there was it's a it's almost like an anthem for faith as opposed to maybe John Lennon's imagine there's no heaven which if there's an anthem for unbelief that might be the the, the song but um then the newsboys many of them came and said you know would you write this book to to give the evidence because really uh 3 out of 4 young people will leave their church youth groups and when they get to college 3 out of 4 will will pretty much leave their faith behind it, is so, part of the so challenge most-
1: here even as we try to go about giving evidence for God, that the the protagonist ends up having to deal with maybe an even bigger question that's being presented, and not just that God exists or doesn't exist, but that why his existence even matters?
3: Yeah, That's an excellent question. I was actually at a... I work a lot, Craig, on the university campuses. Our, our ministry, we're on maybe 700 campuses around the world, and I was out on a, a campus, a University of Buenos Aires, and I, I had a translator with me, and I, I had four atheists there and they basically posed that to me. They said, well, why does this even matter? Why does the existence of God even matter? Why do we even need to discuss it? And one of them had a guitar. And so through the translator, I, I said, do you write music? And he thought I was changing the subject and said, you know, he, like, okay, let's quit talking about God. Let's talk about me. And he <laughs> said, yes, I, I write music. And I, I said, let me ask you. I said, I said, have you ever written a song? He said, yes, I've written a song. And I said, why did you write it? And he said, I wanted to bless. I wanted to and say bless. He said, I wanted to help people. I wanted to express my feelings. And I said, well, what if you wrote a song and somebody either denied you wrote it or took credit for what you wrote? Would that bother you? And he just instantly said, absolutely. You know, in his own however he said that. And I said, well, what if you created a planet? <laughs> in other words, God is the creator now we're so uh, we're so in tune to our intellectual property rights and to that, but here God is the creator of everything. He has the patent on air. He has the patent on DNA. Because He is the creator, then all of life points to His ownership, and that's what in the in the Scripture talks about. When we stop honoring Him as God or giving thanks, and our hearts become darkened. So, because God is real, He is the ultimate basis of reality, and so to deny that or to ignore that. Is much like a fish that just says, "I just don't want to acknowledge water. I don't want to acknowledge what surrounds me." Uh, and it's and it says, "In Him we live and move and have our being." So everything it's everything to do with a healthy life, with a normal life, to understand the the very ground of our being, which is God Himself.
1: And the existence of your doubt does not pretend to the notion that therefore what you doubt exists certainly does not. We're gonna go a little bit deeper on this. Uh, Equation We're visiting today with uh, Dr. Rice Brooks. The book is called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. Take a brief time out.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Dr. Rice Brooks with us today. A look at God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. And certainly there's plenty of that these days with the the knowledge on the increase as Scripture tells us it would happen. More and more people want evidence. When it comes down to that evidence, let's talk about that. There's often that sense out there, uh, Dr. Brooks, that this is all about blind faith and that somehow we need to check our brains at the door, that there is a disconnect between science and belief. Talk to us a bit about uh, this notion that somehow uh, belief in God necessitates that we completely disconnect our intellect.
3: Uh, Craig, excellent point. In fact, last year I went to the Global Atheist Convention uh, down in Australia to listen firsthand to men like Richard Dawkins and the rest of these uh, folks that are putting this forth, and um, that was really their central contention. Ironically, Craig, uh, on the opening night of the convention, there were four professional comedians. You'd think you'd go all the way to Melbourne to hear, you know, something very scientific and profound or, you know, deeply philosophical to substantiate their lack of faith, and and it was just insult and mockery. And ironically, there was very little reason present at the global celebration of reason, as they called it. On the other hand, real faith isn't blind, meaning that we have faith based on, number one, that we know God is real from what he's created. I think science is pointing to that. In fact, um, I was in the home of a man named Francis Collins, who uh, headed up the Human Genome Project. And, And really, Craig, imagine this. Imagine Imagine somebody listening got a text on their phone, and and usually what we call it is a pocket text, and and you had a few disjointed letters or disconnected letters. You'd know it was somebody sat on their phone. If somebody gave you a complete sentence, like if a student, you know, don't tell anybody I cheated on the test, they would know that sentence was not randomly produced. What about a sentence 3.1 billion letters long? That's the ordered information in the human genome. And that's what caused men like Anthony Flew, who used to be the world's most famous atheist, to basically, before he died, to say, I now believe in God because of the information in DNA. And so if you go to the very beginning of the universe, uh, scientists talk about it being fine-tuned, meaning that from the very beginning, if you just take what physicists tell us about the Big Bang, uh, basically there was such an order, and it's almost like you had little knobs, like if you had a universe starter kit. And gravity and other other of these constants and quantities were so finely tuned that the only response that atheists have is is that well there must be an infinite number of universes. See if you have an infinite number of chances, then you get a universe like ours, which has all of these fantastically uh, calibrated uh, uh, you know uh, you know equations and equations. But that's when you take laws and put them into mathematical statements. They are they are. It displays and shows the incredible order in the universe. Stephen Hawking, probably the most celebrated physicist of our time, uh, had a show on the Discovery Channel, and he said the universe could pop into existence on its own, out of nothing. And it's basically this you know, kind of the implication of quantum mechanics, which says that in the subatomic world, these particles kind of appear and disappear. But there's this kind of underlying thing that they say the laws of physics would predict this. So what you have, Craig, is you either have an eternal set of laws that have just been there, or an eternal lawgiver which is the better explanation. So- All right,
1: what, what about the argument you made mention earlier, you brought up Richard Dawkins' name, uh, and you're, you're kind of heading down the road toward uh, the notion of intelligent design. Now Richard Dawkins would suggest that, well, wait a minute now, to to suggest there's des- <coughs> me, design and complexity about mankind, and therefore if, if design, then an intelligent designer that suggests, then, that the designer, by, by course, by nature, must be more complex than what he or it has designed, and, and therefore an absolute impossibility. What about that argument?
3: Well, it, he's really, it's really kind of a twist on, actually, uh, from a theologian named William of Ockham uh, in Ockham's Razor, which basically said if you have two explanations, the simpler one should be chosen. But I mean that's like saying I go into an art museum and say well I'm trying to figure out who made this painting and I can't I can't postulate an artist because the artist would be more complex than the painting. You see so simplicity the the, the if you start looking at the complexities or the complexities rather of what it would take for a universe to start itself the complexities of all the detail from DNA to the fine tuning to the moral to to the morality within humans to the existence of consciousness uh, i mean Think about this. I mean, when Dawkins talks about who designed the designer, well, uh, you're you're really that's kind of like a schoolyard. It's like if you go to the moon. Al, Alvin Plantinga, a philosopher, said if you go to the moon and found a, you know, somehow this big machinery on the other side, and and somebody said, oh, that couldn't have, you know, that that just had to happen because you know it couldn't have just gotten here on its own. Or if you're positing somebody brought that here, they would be more complex than that. I mean, it really becomes an absurd argument. So I think the evidence, Craig. The evidence of design, the evidence of morality, the evidence of our own conscious minds and personality, and ultimately reason itself. There is no other explanation for reason than a, than a mind behind the universe. Uh, C.S. Lewis would have said it this way, what's more plausible, that mind brought matter into existence or that inanimate, you know, you know uncaused or, you know, matter brought mind into existence? So the best explanation I believe to the objective mind is is that there was mind first and then matter.
1: Well, we look, for example, at the so-called Big Bang theory and the notion that out of this huge bang, this huge explosion, came such an incredible, incredible degree of chaos and yet we, or, or organization, rather, and yet since then we've never been able to repeat that. Every time I've seen a bomb go off. We know its capability of destruction. We've never seen anybody blow up a building, for example, and wind up with a steamship. <laughs> you know, the, the notion oh, that true. somehow out out of destruction comes order simply doesn't make any sense. And yet, that's been one of the arguments that they've hung. Uh, frivolously too for so many decades. If you've tuned in a bit late, we're visiting today with Dr. Rice Brooks. The book is called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. We'll come back to more as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Our conversation in this portion of the program with Dr. Rice Brooks. The book is called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. Doctor, what about this notion that it seems to be it's either God or science, that they're mutually exclusive people that like to engage in that debate? Um, They're looking for the historicity of Christ the eyewitness accounts, the normal things that we would ask of anyone who's giving a, an account of an event that took place that the rest of us did not witness. For example, uh, how, how do we know that the Titanic sunk? None of us, for the most part, were alive in 1912 when that event occurred, but we have the accounts of eyewitnesses, we have historical evidence, we have scientific proof, so to speak, to back up the fact that such a vessel did exist, it did sink, and a thousand people perished at sea.
3: Right. I, I, Craig, I think what you're saying is, is that, you know, first of all, science, uh, science and God, I mean, the, science rose out of a Christian worldview. People don't realize this, that the original scientists, so to speak, were believers. And the reason it rose out of a Christian ethos was because they believed the universe and the world was rationally understandable, and because of that, they understood, like Isaac Newton, understood the mathematical order of the world, and and, and of and you start seeing the complexity of things and the harmony of things. I mean, Einstein himself, who was no, uh, he didn't believe in a personal God, but he certainly uh, he certainly said things that people today that are trying to portray him as an ultimate skeptic don't like to be reminded of. He said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that the universe is comprehensible. And so uh, scientists have talked about that people who are Christians talk about it being like binocular vision, that it takes faith and science working together. Uh, science can tell you if you go into a kitchen and you see a boil of you know water on the uh, pot boiling on the stove you can measure the heat and when the water boils and the the, all the elements that are making up the pot but science can't tell you why that pot of tea is boiling or why that kettle is boiling well i'm going to make a cup of tea would you like one as C.S. Lewis would have said so there's there's the ultimate questions of why we're here is Godfrey Leibniz uh, Mathematician and a believer would ask the question: Why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, I was on a university campus at the University of New Orleans, and I, I I posed that to the classroom. I said, "Look, you have either you you either everything you see either created itself, or it was started by something besides itself." Thinking that would be a simple little choice of. Every, everything we see, matter, energy, space, time, all of it just started itself or it was started by something besides itself. And a student raised his hand. He said, there's a third choice. I said, well, what is it? He said, maybe we're not here at all. I, and a class kind of laughed. And I said, well, in that case, you wouldn't be here. So be quiet. But no, we're here. And so why is there something rather than nothing? Scientists can't answer that. They can't answer where did life come from? Darwin proposed evolution, but evolution is a theory that tells you what happens after you get life. It can't tell you where the self-replicating mutator uh, or that, that mechanism came from. Much less the original organism. Darwin said that in *The Origin of Species*. We have no, we at this point have no understanding as to where life came from. Uh, the scientists can't answer why are we moral. You know, people talk about the problem of evil, but what about the problem of good? For every one person that goes in and shoots up a theater or does something in a school, there's millions more that would never do such a thing and know it's wrong and reach out in comfort and concern and compassion. And so why are we moral? What's, what, what is this thing called morality that we know there's a right and a wrong? And Darwinian ethics can't explain that. Darwinian ethics can't tell us why Hitler was wrong versus uh, other scientists from other countries. And the ultimate question uh, Craig, that science can't answer is, who can we trust to fix us? And really, I think for our listeners and, you know, whether it's politics or interest rates, I mean, all the things you cover on this show, everybody's looking for, who can I trust? Whose advice can I trust? And really, the ultimate evidence of why we can trust in Jesus Christ is because the that God himself, the creator, became a man in Christ and he walked on this earth and then he inexplicably to, the, to those around him uh, gave himself over to, to be killed but three days later he rose from the dead and, and interesting he rose from the dead in the very place where it would have been easiest to disprove which was Jerusalem I lived in Jerusalem for several months been there many times and nobody doubts there really that Jesus lived uh, it's really co- it comes down to what happened nor did he really did he died the question, the ultimate question is, what happened after three days? And when he came out of that grave in history, resurrected, it verified his identity. And that's why we know we can trust his voice, his words, uh, his, his, his wisdom. We can trust that. We can trust that advice, if you will, and say that God hasn't just kind of given us some vague understanding. He has reached us in Christ and given us the ultimate evidence.
1: In The Ultimate Evidence, and I know inside the book, God's Not Dead, you refer to nine basic proofs of the, the, uh, the evidence of God. It, it, is The Ultimate Design here to be a handbook for believers to understand more about their faith as they share it with others in a more vibrant fashion? Or is this even appropriate for someone who's a seeker that says, you know, I don't know that God exists, or I have severe doubts of his existence, and I've been challenged, and so I'd like to do some research?
3: Craig, thank you for that question. It's really all of the above. I mean, I think number one, there's a lot of people that know God is real. You know He's real, but you just can't show it. Uh, you have a subjective experience of God, but if you're asked by a classmate, by a coworker, in fact, the man who, one of the men who inspired this book was in the Christian music industry. His name is Dean, and uh, he'd been in there for several years. And he said, he said to me, he said, I was actually talked out of my faith by an atheist. And he's driving down the highway, and uh, he just, out of his mouth, he said, God, I just can't believe in you anymore. Here's a Christian music executive in the city I'm in right now, Nashville. And he just finally is so embarrassed because this atheist pretty much said something that he couldn't respond to that he just verbalizes this, hey, God, I don't want to believe in you anymore. And he said, no sooner had he said that, that he hears a voice that said, who do you think you're talking to? Mm. So he literally pulls his car off the side of the road on I-40 here in Nashville to get his heart right, he said. But he still had to get his head right. And see, this is the thing, is that God, we we don't have a faith that can't be examined. God doesn't want us to bury our doubts or just swallow and follow or don't think like that. He calls us to love him with all of our minds and hearts so first of all, if you're a believer, but yet you're struggling with doubts, or I, can't ex- I don't think I could explain this to an unbeliever, then yes, I've written this book, God's Not Dead, to give you those proofs. Uh, but if you are a seeker, or even more, if you're a skeptic, uh, you know, Craig, my atheist brother, I, I, I tell the story about my brother, who is my older brother, he was in law school at Southern Methodist University. He had a master's degree in counseling and psychology, and in his third year, at the top of his class, he came home to talk me out of the Christian faith. Mm. And he'd been studying the Bible to find the contradictions. And really, in, the, in trying to answer his questions, it dawned, I just looked at him and I said, Ben, it's not what you don't know about God that's keeping you from him. It's what you do know. It's like trying to hold a beach ball under the water, says in Romans, and men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's what he was doing. And uh, the night he came home to talk me out of the faith, I actually baptized my older brother. He's an attorney now, Ben Brooks, in Austin, Texas, and, and, a, and a very formidable witness for Christ. But I have found that the skeptic and the, and the atheist, I mean, I'm, I think if we talk to them and answer their questions and listen to their objections, I think this book is going to give any believer uh, the ability to be in that conversation. I've got a 16-year-old, and I tell him all the time, I say, his name is Wyatt. I said, Wyatt, this may be over your head, but it's not out of your reach. And I think that if if believers, I mean, look, there's fantastic, you know, Robbie Zacharias, Lee Strobel, you can name it, William Lane Craig, Dr. Hugh Ross, on and on. But, you know, we don't just need another expert. We need millions of believers, Craig, that can articulate the evidence for their faith. Uh, to the world around them. And that's what I hope the book will give every believer the ability to do.
1: And I hope then, too, for those that might even be listening right now that are decidedly in the, the, the curious category, the seeker category, maybe decidedly in the disbeliever category, you know, it has often been said sometimes by atheists that uh, uh, they um, they've never come to faith in the existence of God or faith in Christ, for one or two reasons: either because, well, they never knew a Christian who told them the story, or because they did know a Christian and therefore decided not to. Don't let the behavior sometimes of others stand in your way of engaging in your own truth seeking, your own research. Oftentimes, at the end, there ultimately is much too ev- too much evidence to simply ignore or to maintain disbelief. And good way to get educated and start, whether you're a seeker, curious, disbeliever, or somebody that's just looking to get a better handle on your own faith. Uh, you, you want to trade that weak, listless, ineffective faith for an alive, vibrant, life-changing faith. Uh, this book is a good place to start. God's Not Dead Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. The book by the way newly published by our friends over at Thomas Nelson. You can get it at the usual suspects, Bay Area bookstores as well as through amazon.com and uh, Dr. Brooks, you've got a website too, don't you?
3: Yes we do. We have it's ricebrooks.com or you can if you if there's pastors listing, we have resources, there's actually sermon series of free notes. Well, in other words, we're We were wanting pastors and leaders and campus leaders. I've just come from, I'm I'm currently on a campus tour, and uh, campus leaders are doing series and small group material. You can go to godsnotdead.org or ricebrooks.com. But, yeah, the book technically comes out, Craig, in about a week. I think it's a week from today. But I think you can get it uh, pre-ordered on Amazon, but it'll hit the bookstore shelves in about a week. Excellent. We'd
1: love to have you you on early to do a bit of a tease here tonight, Doctor, and we'd love to get you back again soon.
3: Thank you so much.
1: There is Dr. Rice Brooks. God's not dead, evidence for God in an age of uncertainty. And our thanks to Dr. Rice Brooks for being with us on this segment of the program.